Good? Everybody's doing well? You know, it's coming up to Christmas and uh, God was looking at the earth just recently and realised that things weren't going so well and uh, he, he wanted a report on the earth to know exactly what was going on so he sent one of his best angels to earth to get a report back from him um, to know what was happening and the angel came back to God just recently and said to God that the earth is 95% evil and 5% good and God was really concerned. He sent another angel just to confirm that and that angel went to earth and confirmed yet again 95% evil and 5% good. So God said, right, okay, I'm going to send an email to that 5% that are good because he wanted to encourage them and to give them a little something to help them keep going. Do you want to know what that email said? Do you want to know what that email said? So you didn't get it either. <laughs> the angels have roles and responsibilities. That's not one of them. But they do have roles and responsibilities. Look, this morning, there is so much. This is uh, one of the biggest topics that I've, I've tried to tackle in one message. So bear with me, it's 14 hours long. This morning I want to dispense uh, with some myths, some misunderstandings concerning angels, demons and Satan and perhaps um, enlighten us to some of the truths previously not really known to be able to put some of these facts and figures together. But ultimately, what does that mean to us? As we've been going through this series on what we believe, know what you believe, we've looked at, we've looked at this whole thing very logically, very progressively. We've looked at the, the doctrine of the Bible. We've looked at the doctrine of God. We've looked at the doctrine of sin and man, the Holy Spirit, of salvation, end times in the church, and now we come to this sometimes misunderstood or even trivialised aspect of theology, the doctrine of angels, demons and Satan. There's too much to discuss, as I've said. Angels are mentioned over 250 times in the Old and New Testament, so I just can't get through everything in one go. So first off, let's dispense with some myths and establish some facts and foundations. Let me ask the question, which is in everybody's mind, or it will be soon, when were angels created? Most theologians, good theologians, would agree that the angels were probably created on the first day of the week of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know from other passages of scripture that also light shed light on this, that in creating the heavens, it was creating all of those things which existed in heaven. And that includes the angels. So all of the heavenly bodies were present at the time that the earth was, the earth's foundations were put in place. We know that from the book of Job, chapter 38 and verses 6 through 7, that the angels sang together, oh, sorry, the, uh, it's not the angels were singing necessarily, but certainly the sons of God were singing at the foundation of the earth. The reason I say that is because that is the only possible link in the whole of the Bible of angels singing. 
Nowhere else do the angels sing. They say, they said, they agree with verbally, but it's not recorded that they sing. Why do I say that? To get you to start thinking. I want you to think. See, sometimes we, we accept things that are, that are traditional. Listen, personally, I want the angels to sing. I think that would be a great thing. But at the same time, if they don't sing, and we're the only created uh, creatures that, that sing, that would be awesome for them when they hear us sing and sing praises to God. Do the angels sing? They certainly possess cognition and will. At the time of creation, Lucifer was one of those created angels. He was the most perfect, the most beautiful being created. But he opposed God, didn't he? He said, I will ascend to the Most High. I'm going to usurp you, God, and I will take over. At which point he was cast down to earth along with a third of the angels we know from the book of Revelation and Lucifer's name was changed. And he has a number of names, not the least of which is Satan. And all of the angels that went with him are demons, have become demons. They have become the exact opposite of that which they were initially created. Are they able to repent? Are they able to find a way back to God as demons, as Satan? This is critical to understand. Is there repentance for them? Christ died for mankind. Christ did not die for the angels. From all that we can gather, the angels made a one-off decision and they are sealed in that decision. There is no point at which angels or demons can find forgiveness for their rejection of God. It is done. So the, um, they possess a will, they possess emotions, they rejoiced at the point of creation and seeing what God was doing. They understand fear when they've appeared to mankind and, and men have responded with fear. They understand that clearly. And so they are in many aspects like us but not the same. There are different types of angels as well. So collectively, angels, all of the heavenly bodies, are often referred to as the sons of God in Job 1, as holy ones in the Psalms, as spirits in Hebrews 1, creatures in Daniel 4, with different roles, both sides of the spectrum, both the good angels and the evil angels, the demons, have structure under them, whereby there are thrones and principalities, dominions and authorities, we know from Colossians, Ephesians and First Peter. There are other heavenly beings, distinct from uh, most angels, but created heavenly beings for a specific purpose. Some of those, well, these are uh, the cherubim. So we've heard of cherubim uh, before. The cherubim, uh, there was one in particular right at the beginning in, in uh, the Garden of Eden that was set up to guard the entrance to the garden so that uh, man could not come back in to eat of the tree of life. Okay, So he, he stood guard and he was a fierce looking bloke with a big fiery sword. No wimp, 
um, Psalms and Ezekiel mention uh, the cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant, if you recall, had two cherubim on top with their wings touching. And um, they had four wings, in fact. They had two wings which were raised up and two wings that covered their bodies. They may in some way be related to the living creatures uh, that surround the throne and constantly say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. These, four, these living creatures have four faces, the face of a lion, of an ox, of a man, and of an eagle. And constantly, right at this moment, are declaring in the heavenlies, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. There are other um, uh, angelic beings. The seraphim are another one. They have six wings. They most certainly can fly. And other than that, they look like us, and that's all we know, really. There are some named angels, Lucifer that we've already mentioned and discussed. There was Michael, who is the archangel. He's a special guardian of Israel. We know that from the book of Daniel. He contended with Satan for Moses' body from Jude 9, and he will lead battle uh, in time to come in Revelation chapter 2. There is also Gabriel, a herald of great things to men. We know that from 1 Thessalonians. He explained Daniel's vision to him in Daniel 8, and he also uh, gave him the 70-week prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And it was he who announced the birth of John to Zechariah and Elizabeth and of Jesus to Mary. And he continually stands in the presence of the Lord. Gabriel's function seems to be that of a messenger, while Michael's function seems to be that of a warrior. And it seems that under these two, there are arrayed a breakdown of how the angels are sent to do their work on God's behalf. Do people become angels? Um, you heard about the guy that said, my wife's an angel. And his mate says, oh, you're lucky, mine's still alive. That's terrible. They are created beings. They were created before mankind with a particular purpose but with a distinct function from man. So no, there is nowhere in scripture that indicates that people become angels in heaven. How powerful are they? I said previously, they're not wussy. You know, the cherubim are not these little fat boys with a little bow and arrow, you know. That's, that's not the picture we get. They're pretty awesome. One angel, 145,000 men killed in Assyria in one night. That's pretty tough. They are tough and strong. But they don't possess the eternal essence of God. They don't know all things. They aren't all powerful and they aren't all present. The demons cannot read minds. 
But get this. They've been around since the time of creation. We've only been here for a very, very, very short time, 8,000 or so years later. right? And we're only going to be here for a very short time. They've been here the whole time, watching, looking, learning, understanding. They know the pathology of our thought. They know how we think and they're able to put thoughts into our minds and tempt us. And they're very, very good at that. That's the demons are very, very good at that. So while they can't read your thoughts, they certainly know how you think and can allow temptation to come your way. That raises a whole bunch of other questions that I'm not going to answer concerning demon possession and all of those things. But it does raise a number of questions. The demons are subject to Christ. See, Christ wouldn't even allow the the demons to declare that he was the Lord because Christ wouldn't have that truth come from that source. He shut them up and shut them down whenever they decided to do that. But they have to obey him. And we know that from the children's talk last week. Thank goodness for the children's talk. That was fantastic. Uh, the, the demons had to obey Jesus. And when uh, legion was cast out of a certain man, um, the demons asked, can we go into these pigs? Jesus allowed it, and so they went. They are subject to him. Probably the best uh, illustration, indication of that is uh, the book of Job. And in chapter 1 it says here, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came among them. You know, just see the picture, Satan doesn't, he's not, he's not leading them like, you know, here I am Lord and here's all my minions. He was sort of in the background thinking, I hate being here, I hate having to be here, but it's an appointed time. So God knowing this points out Satan and said, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, oh, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down it. You know, ah, just be here, me. hither and yon. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Knowing full well that he had considered his servant Job. And there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? And he can see, God just saw right through him, you know. And Satan says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? I don't know whether that's an angelic hedge, you know, whether that was the angels protecting Job or not. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand, so don't kill Job. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and Satan gave Job the hardest time that I think anybody's had on earth, pretty much. It was pretty intense. He took his 7,000 sheep, his 3,000 camels, his 500 yoke of ox, his 500 female donkeys, uh, 
He took away his servants. He took away everything that was growing, all his crops. He took away his seven sons and three daughters. He left his wife. See, there are two things that we hear from Mrs. Job, if you will. One is she says, she's talking to Job, okay? And she says, curse God and die. And the other thing that Mrs. Job says is, your breath is an offence to me. Now, Ruth has never told me, curse God and die. She, she may have mentioned the other, um, but uh, I think for a different reason and in a different way. Why did Satan take everything Job have, including his sons and daughters, and leave his wife? From every indication I've got, she was doing Satan's job for him. You know, and, and here's the thing. There are times where we can say things to people and we're actually not necessarily speaking wisdom, truth and life. We can actually be speaking words that destroy and agreeing with Satan rather than speaking what God wants in people's lives. We can do that to our kids so easily. We can do that to other people around us, people at work. We can talk about people at work in, in ways that, you know, we know if they heard that, they'd be crushed. Or think, oh yeah, well, whatever, you know. What you say doesn't matter. And we're not talking the things that God would have us say. The point is, the demons along with the angels are subject to Christ. They answer to him. There are other issues. There are further issues. How many angels are there? Lots. Okay. Way lots. Thousands upon thousands. Myriad upon myriads. We don't know. How many times have I said I don't know so far? I haven't been counting. We can go back to the tape later and, and find out, I guess. But there is so much about the angels that we don't know. We know little snippets of things and, and, and it's amazing some of the things that we do find out. What about guardian angels? Does everybody have a guardian angel? Uh, Psalm 91 and Matthew 18 might indicate something along those lines. Or are there uh, angels that are set up who have particular areas or precincts or um, towns, countries, etc. And it would indicate, I, I don't know, I, I tend to think that it, the scriptures sort of more indicate that kind of a, an arrangement, that there's a hierarchical arrangement of, of angels and that they have particular areas to look after. But there may be something of particular angels. Certainly there are angels sent at particular times for a specific need. I have friends that were in uh, Pakistan at the uh, Murray Christian School in 2002 when uh, a bunch of, of um, would-be assassins uh, came through their school, the uh, Murray Christian School. It was a, a school set up to look after missionary kids so that the missionaries could be where they were located anywhere in the world and their, their children could receive an education at the Murray Christian School. Terrorists came in to shoot the kids, to shoot the teachers. Our friends were uh, having language lessons at the time, 
protocol was that if they were under attack, that they were to seek shelter under their bed and to stay there and wait until the all clear was given. Um, um, the lady who was our friend uh, said all she could do was pray and ask that God would give her the grace to accept the news when she heard that her children had been killed. That was what was going through her mind. It was a terrible, horrendous time. Down on the ground, however, these guys that had cased the place for ages, and they're no idiots, right? They cased the place for a long, long time. We're trying to get into buildings where all you had to do was push the door open and they were pulling like crazy. I don't know about you. I don't know whether there was some angel on the other side. Stay up. Or whether they were just confused in their thinking by some messenger. Um, probably the most standout account in this whole thing, the kids heard singing in the, in the, in the uh, rafters, you know, like a bunch of young kids were huddled together uh, in fear of what was going on and they knew what was going on. And all of a sudden they heard this, this singing of, of songs that they knew coming out of the rafters of the main hall and they were comforted by that and sang along. You know? um, a bunch of people were running uh, across a field to get out and to escape over a fence and there was an old guy with a grey beard that was, that was down at the fence and, and he said, come this way, come this way. So they all ran that way and he was helping people over the fence one at a time and then the last guy to get over the fence bent down to, to help him over and there was nobody there. The Bible does say, tell us to uh, treat strangers kindly because you don't know, you may unwittingly be entertaining angels. I don't know. I don't know. I just know that supernatural things happened at the Murray Christian School at that time. And God does provide those kinds of things. He does provide special protection. Do angels marry? Do angels marry? No. Jesus said that himself. Angels don't marry. They're all referred to as male as well. Um, and so there's no little angels being created. All right. That's a lot of facts and figures and a lot of the dry stuff. So what? You know, uh, honestly, for, for this type of thing... I've got, to, I've got to try and simplify it for myself, otherwise I just don't get it. What we've got is two sides. We've got, we've got God on one side, we've got Satan on the other. God on the one hand loves creation and especially mankind. Satan hates all of creation and especially mankind. God provides for our needs. Satan creates need. He tries to take away, to rob and to kill. Christ has come to give life and give it more abundantly. Satan desires to destroy life as he roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. God 
is love, purity, holiness, Satan is all things, hate, lust, and depravity. God wants us to be like Christ, found in him. Satan wants us to be like him, lost. Now, for me, I have to reduce everything, all of this stuff, down to its irreducible minimum. And in the complexity of all of the things that we've talked about so far, what is the core of it? What's its essence? If I boil it all down, if I strip away all the extraneous stuff, what's left? What is the truth of the matter? Simply this, God has his plan and Satan has his. God has his plan not just of salvation but of an end game where all things will be made right in him. Satan has his plan to overthrow that plan. That's what's going on. It's as simple as that. It brings war between God and Satan. And war it is. It's a greater war than has ever been fought on the face of this earth. And the spoils of war are greater. It's irreconcilable. It will end, however, with Satan confined to an eternal fire in hell, reserved for him. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that. It's already a done deal. We're already on the winning side. So, if we understand this conflict from the point of creation to its final destination, how do we live here and now? What's my response? One Peter one uh, verses ten through twelve, and I know that John Merriweather has has already gone through this and gone through this brilliantly. But if if you could have a look at, at uh, one Peter chapter one verses 10 through 12, um, I just think that there are some things here that, that I just really want to highlight and, um, and bring to mind. Concerning this salvation, okay, so that's what this whole paragraph is all about. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they have now announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. Now, the prophets, okay, who... who uh, lived before Christ, were writing stuff down and they're going, I don't get it. They're moved by the Holy Spirit to write these exact words that they were writing, but they're going, it doesn't make sense to me. It really just doesn't make sense to me. And so they'd get the other prophets along and say, can you tell me what I meant when I wrote this? And they're going, I don't know. But they looked into it intently. The prophets themselves are going, who is this? What time, what type of person is this who's coming? What do we mean about the sufferings of Christ? What does all this mean? And yet here, Peter is saying it wasn't about them, it was about somebody yet future, those who would know Christ, and that's you and me as well. 
And so they were writing these things, not knowing what on earth it was about. And, and, and so we have the good news and it's been preached to us and we've accepted it. And by the Holy Spirit who is sent from heaven, things into which, concerning the salvation, things into which, it says here, the angels long to look. God provided salvation for humanity in Christ. God's plan, his desire, is that we would be saved. That's the core issue. That's what drives heaven and all who inhabit it. Let me repeat that. Salvation is what drives heaven and all who inhabit it. That's been the plan since before the foundation of the world we know. Saving, redeeming humanity. And so if Satan is going to attack at any front, it's that one. So for us, what's it all about then? Is it about the car, the, the family, the, the house, the job, the education, the clothes? It's not about that at all. It's all about salvation. It's all about salvation. And because we're under attack and we're forewarned that we will be, we can be forearmed. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And again, John did an amazing job with the kids concerning the armour of God. Right? But here it is. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where we live. That's what's going on. Therefore... Because of that, knowing this, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. There's a theme here. It's being able to stand. Having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It's all about salvation. This unseen, para-world, fourth-dimensional reality. For the Trekkies amongst us, maybe it's a phase variance. I don't know. But, <laughs> he loved it. It's real. 
It's as real as the seat on which you're seating. It's as real as the concrete under your feet. It's as real as the person sitting right beside you. This is real. And it goes on all the time around us. It's happening every second of every day. And Satan hates you. He hates our children. And he hates our grandchildren. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We're on the winning side. And yes, it's a fight. Yes, it's a struggle. Yes, things come our way. Yes, Satan hates us. But greater, greater, greater is he who is in us. And when we put the armour on, what is that? That's practical. That's not praying, Lord, I'm putting on the breastplate of righteousness in the morning. That's actually making sure, hey, I think about the right things, I look at the right things and I do the right things so that I can protect my heart. That's understanding that I'm saved and knowing what that means and all that comes with salvation, that I'm righteous, justified, holy. That all comes with salvation and know that and that will protect your thinking. And that our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We're not just to stand, we're to advance. An army always advances. We withstand our enemy, but we push forward. And we have a mechanism in place by which to be able to achieve that, and part of that is the church. The encouragement and the beauty of fellowship that we enjoy with one another. Our lives are God's. We are a prize, Ephesians 2 tells us, trophies of grace. Amazing picture. And we can't take it for granted. 1 Peter 1.12 says, These things are the things into which the angels long to look. They're amazed at our salvation. They were there when... Their brothers fell and have become demons and have become their arch nemeses. They watched as the prophets wrote of the promise of the Messiah. They were there at the garden at the, at the initial promise of him coming, given by God. And they were there as he hung on the cross for you. And for me, so that we could tell others of this amazing news. They were there. And they are amazed at God's grace, of his mercy, of his glory. And Christ sends them to do battle on our behalf. They fight, they protect, and they minister. And when one sinner is saved, they go, oh, that's good. <laughs> I 
they rejoiced and I think it's quite loud. Wouldn't be, you know, too loud though for Baptists. I think it's loud. When one sinner is saved, they let go. Because that's what it's about. That the redemption of humanity is the core of God's plan. It is the core of all of human history and it's the core of our lives. Salvation and all it means and all it brings. And these angels long to look into it. They won't understand it personally, but they look into it and we teach them what salvation really means. That's pretty awesome. And they understand something more of God because of what they see in us. Mercy, grace. We don't have our turn before God face to face yet. They do. And they glorify him. We don't. And we glorify him. You know, it's a concentrated effort, this longing to look. It's a, it's a concentrated effort. It's a, it's a passion. It's a drive. It's a need to understand. It's, it's like, um, I don't know. Uh, look, I, I've done a lot of woodwork in my time and, and a little bit of wood carving and stuff like that. And when, I, when, I, when I'm carving, nothing else in the world exists. It's just me paring away little bits of wood in order to create something beautiful out of that wood. Okay, or it's like when my wife uh, does quilting, and and she needs to get a straight, accurate square line, and buys all sorts of paraphernalia to achieve that. It's wonderful. It's okay. I, I return the favour. I buy stuff for the shed. But it's true. Ruth puts in every ounce of effort to make sure that things are accurate with that. Or somebody who decorates a cake or paints a picture. You know, the rendering that there is in that and, and the attention to detail and there's nothing that exists between me and this thing that I'm doing. And I'm, I just pour my entire self into it as I study it. And that's what the angels are doing with our lives, pouring themselves over what they see in us and going, this reveals more and more and more of God. We're a training, we're, we're like their teachers, you know. That's pretty awesome. In conclusion, finally, I'd like to ask a couple of questions. Is your salvation precious to you? Is your salvation precious to you? Or have you lost your first love? You know that first love when you were first saved, that, that thing that was so great, so intense. How is that now? Have you lost that burning passion? Let it be rekindled. How can it be rekindled, you say? How can I get that back? 
It was so long ago and I just so much water under the bridge and I just don't know that God even wants me back to that place. The church at Ephesus had lost its first love and the writer to the church says, do the first works. Rekindle it. Do the first works. Go back and live as you did when you were first saved. That heart of zeal, that exhilarating love for God, the sense of hunger for his word, that need to pray, that longing for fellowship with others. The first works. Remember the greatness of your salvation because that's what it's all about. God's plan, the angel's purpose, as we work alongside what they do. Can we pray? Lord, we ask, would you clothe us with your righteousness? Lord, that men may know you, that the angels may be astonished at what they see as we live for you and as you live through us. God, could you restore to us maybe the joy of our salvation? Incentivate us to, to fight the good fight right alongside your heavenly hosts who battle with us. We praise you for all that we have become trophies of grace, the spoils of war that rages around us in that unseen realm. Because the kingdom belongs to you. The power we have to achieve this is given to us from you. And it returns back to you as glory forever and ever. Amen.